up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek First Contact, starring Patrick Stewart, Brent Spiner, Jonathan Frakes, James Cromwell, Alfre Woodard, and directed by Jonathan Frakes. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart, and I'm, as always, in L.A. This is Arnie, coming to you from the Delta Quadrant this time. I decided to go on a little field trip for the material we were covering. Ah, the Delta Quadrant. Fancy. Come on, we've been doing this what? This is our eighth show. It had to be done eventually. I had to make the geeky joke. So this is the first Next Generation full-on movie, and their villains are some of the best villains they got in the Next Generation, the Borg. So I guess we should probably start First Contact. This one might be a good one to start off with, something a little different. Let's start off with a plot summary. What do you think, Arnie? (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit risky, a little bit experimental, but I think I'm down with it. All right, let's try this thing. Either that or I could do a fan dance. So we're one year since the launch of the NCC-1701E, as in every time the ship gets blown up, there's a new one. The Borg have decided to attack Earth. Picard and the new Enterprise-E go to stop them. Picard, using the knowledge he had from when he was a Borg during the good episodes of The Next Generation, proceeds to blow up the Borg cube, but then they eject a Borg sphere, which travels back in time, and the Enterprise follows them through the time vortex to the mid-21st century, 10 years after World War III. The Borg have traveled back in... Yeah, I know. (laughs) We'll We'll get get to it. (laughs) The Borg have traveled back in time to stop their biggest enemy, man, from ever making contact with the first aliens, the Vulcans, which then led to the birth of the Federation. So in the 21st century, they then proceed to bomb Zephram Cochran, played by James Cromwell's science laboratory, where he has the Phoenix, the first ship to go into warp. The Enterprise blows up the Borg sphere. Riker, Geordi, and Troy, because you always send a counselor on engineering missions, go down to help Zephram Cochran rebuild the Phoenix while on board the Enterprise, the Borg Queen beamed aboard before getting blown up has proceeded to take over half of the Enterprise where they're building a communicator to let the other Borg know, hey, come assimilate this planet. And the Borg Queen takes Data hostage trying to turn him into their Borg King. On the planet, Riker and Jordy have problems as Zephram Cochran is a drunkard who doesn't really care about anything and is freaked out by the the fact that he changes the fate of humanity on the enterprise the fight goes back and forth with the borg eventually zephram cochran does go off into space the first contact with the vulcans does happen the borg are defeated when data fakes her out pretending to be her king and then destroys her flesh and the enterprise then recreates the time vortex to go back home all right, that's it in a nutshell. So we need to go back, I guess, before this movie occurred, because I can remember Next Generation. I watched it for a couple seasons, and I remember there was some kind of cliffhanger where Picard is on screen telling the Enterprise crew he's a Borg now, and I don't remember what the Borg say, assimilate or bend over. I don't I remember what he said. <laughs> Resistance but, is futile. Ah, uh, okay, there's we'll the line. be assimilated. And let me just say, best cliffhanger in television history beating jr by a mile you've got riker and ronnie cox in charge of the enterprise picard is a borg and it ends with riker ordering Jordy and data to blow up picard best cliffhanger ever i remember that cliffhanger and i never saw the conclusion so someone tell me the backstory i'm missing here yeah please 
All right. The gossipy backstory I've heard is that the writer of season three, which is when this cliffhanger took place, was being shown the door at Paramount and wrote this wonderful script with the intent of screwing over the franchise because he painted them into a corner that no one could paint their way out of. Now, I cannot find any proof of this. This is what I heard back in the day. So maybe this is just an urban myth. But that is what I heard. And God, if it isn't the truth, because how can you resolve that cliffhanger and get everything back to status quo? The answer is you can't. The second part of that episode really bit. They rescue Picard. They de-Borgify him. They defeat the Borg because Picard had knowledge and was able to get them to self-destruct the cube. All in all, the most anticlimactic of cliffhangers ever. And But I'm more curious on as it pertains to this movie. <laughs> Actually, that's fine, well, and good for the series. How did Picard get out of being a Borg? And why all of a sudden now is it coming back? Did the Borg not come back any time after he was freed? It just seems to me that if the Borgs assimilate people, according to this movie, and they're gone, they're just gone, according to Picard, how did he be able to come back? Yeah, good question. Here's what I can tell you. In the episode, he's taken to sick bay, where Beverly Crusher does a lot of work removing his implants. Mm. But what about his mind? He's fine. And yet, that doesn't happen ever again. And in fact, here's where I think they copped out. It looked to me in this episode, and it's always looked to me, like the Borg cut off their limbs to replace them with other limbs. And Locutus had a huge robotic tool arm, right? And yet, Picard has a fully functional human arm just underneath it. At the very least, they should have given him the long-lasting repercussions of cybernetics. Prosthetics. Like a little Luke Skywalker there. Exactly. They need to go there with him and they didn't all they did was give him some post-traumatic stress and it lasted really for one episode and then came back again in this movie they had encountered the borg again but picard was always kind of troubled by what happened to him but it never was delved into as deeply as here why does picard have this seemingly psychic connection with the borg now who knows but i did like seeing picard killing his crewmen how great was that scene where that one guy is calling to Picard for help but he's like, help me. And Picard just like shoots him. I really enjoyed that scene. I thought that was powerful. It's like, this is how anti-Borg Picard is. And it also is just why Patrick Stewart is so cool and so much cooler than William Shatner is, is that he does make those tough choices. He is much more of a badass. You know, he can be the theatrical ham just like Shatner. But when push comes to shove, he knows how to command with just a glare on a hardcore decision. Even if I'm sitting here going, well, Picard was saved. What about that? guy. Totally. I thought it was weird that really begged the question for me watching this movie. How did Picard come back? Because he's that important to the show. (laughs) Yes. They've retconned the queen, which I personally have a problem with there being a Borg queen since they are supposedly a collective. Why is there one who's better? I understand it makes for good cinema, but it doesn't make a lot of sense since every time we've seen the Borg before this, they were all of one mind. I can answer that question, actually. I did a research on this movie because I was curious on the Borg. The reason that is, is without a human element to it, without a character that the audience can associate with, they were having trouble with the script or something, so this way they made the Borg Queen to solve all their problems. Right, like I said, it makes for good cinema. It just doesn't make sense. Right. The first time I saw this movie, back in 1996, I believe it came out, I'd never seen the Borg before. I had heard of the Borg. So I thought this opening sequence with Picard's dream sequence really helped me to catch up pretty well. I thought that really established it very, very well. But it didn't stop me from being confused after they established the Borg as this film goes on, how Picard got out of that mess. And you're telling me they never explained it anyway, so we should just give them the mulligan and move on. How many mulligans are you supposed to give them, Brock? We gave them the Queen as a mulligan. We gave them Picard as a mulligan. And we haven't even touched time travel yet. (laughs) But can I just say of the opening sequence, the eye. Ew. The eye. Yeah, awesome though. It was. I have nightmares about that eye. I mean, it looks so freaking real. You don't like eyes blowing up. No, I don't like anything funky with eyes. And there was a needle and it touched an eye and dented it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Good imagery. It gotten a reaction out of me. That reaction was the willies. Speaking of good imagery, that whole opening scene with the pullback, that long shot, even though it was computer generated, I thought that was really cool. I thought the opening credit sequence was very solemn. 
very, very depressing. And then they burst into this amazing action scene kind of thing with the Borg. And then they go right back into uh, the meeting thing. But I really thought the film opened strongly and really helped people like me catch up, which, you know, succeeded in its purpose. So first thing we see the crew is in that meeting and they have Jordy all of a sudden has no visor and they don't explain why. Why is the doctor at the meeting? I don't know. But basically, they're not going to fight the Borg and then they go against orders. So I felt the first 20 minutes of this movie is a lot of exposition to get us into this plot to fight the Borg. I thought that made a lot of sense and kind of was smooth and it kind of got me into the movie. Was it really 20 minutes? I thought that went by really quickly. Don't go fight the Borg. Okay. Hey, we're fighting the Borg. Good. I mean, it really seemed... Maybe it wasn't 20 minutes. It it seemed as perfunctory as the opening of four to me. We got to get to Earth. We got to get back in time. We're going to set it up as quickly as possible and not really pay a whole lot of attention. And equally as perfunctory, we need Worf back on the ship. Well, how do we do that? Because he's over doing Deep Space Nine, the TV show. The only, you know, Ah. he was employed. I was wondering what he was doing. I thought he was a captain of some other ship. He's on the ship, the Defiant, which is Deep Space Nine's warship. So when it gets disabled, then he's beamed aboard as, you know, conveniently to reunite him. So he gets both a TV paycheck and a movie paycheck. Uh, Yeah, but I got to tell you, I thought it was a really clever way to get him on the ship. I remember seeing this back in the day when it first came out, and I knew that Worf was now on DS9. I was aware of that. So I thought the way they worked him in was quite smart. They, They figured out a way to do it, and it seemed somewhat believable to me. You didn't like this? I completely agree. It's believable, but it's perfunctory. And even though he's just beamed aboard as a survivor, he's immediately put to work. It's what they had to do to make the movie they wanted to make. Do I buy it? No. What about Lieutenant Hawk or whoever the hell it was at that station before? They just kind of got shoved aside. Oh, Worf's here. So you go back to quarters. You're on shore leave. You know what? It doesn't make sense. I don't have a problem with it. Well, since we're on the subject of tie-ins, wasn't the projected medical room hologram, wasn't he a character on Voyager? He is. The holographic doctor from Voyager, he's a program, and because Voyager had no doctor, they are relying completely on that hologram, and so they pulled him up here too. And this is where we really start to see that even though it's a Star Trek The Next Generation based movie, they're really trying to incorporate it and make it a Star Trek universe movie. And I think one of the things that they never capitalized on that they really should have with the 10th movie is to try to bring more of the cast back together from different shows and try to really go big with it instead of just having cameos from other cast members. All right, anyway, so... (laughs) You know, a lot of this... I don't want to come off as a complainer with this podcast. The movie has a lot of good things going for it, but much like Star Trek IV, this time travel thing opens a big can of worms. It sure does. I agree with you, Arnie. I want to put it up front right now. I really like the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun to watch. But it's science fiction, and particularly that brand of science fiction where it's about intellectual ideas, the egg-headed Star Trek original conception that Roddenberry put forth is gone and is not very good here at all. It is the problem. It should be noted, now in completely new hands, I forget the man's name that's involved. Brandon Braga. He definitely seems to have a different aesthetic here. And uh, there's good and there's bad with it. Did anyone notice there was a little bit of a retcon here, some retroactive continuity, in that they said World War Three is now in the mid-21st century instead of the 90s? Oh, is that the eugenics oh. war? Yes. Oh, huh. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh. It certainly helped figure out why there's no satellites or no government to stop the alien ship from going down or stopping Zephyr and Cochrane from blasting off. That was certainly convenient that there was no government around because of World War III. One of the big things Star Trek fans have a problem with, and I foresee this being a problem with the new movie for those fans, is continuity. Trek likes to take its continuity and just kind of throw it away. Everything from Klingons having rigid foreheads to Zephyr and Cochrane here. Zephram Cochran is a character from the original Star Trek series where a man in his 30s, yes, he invented warp drive on the planet Alpha Centauri. So it first of all bothered me that they made Zephram Cochran a 50-year-old man drunkard on Earth. That was a real big sticking problem for me as a Trek fan. You know, for Trek fans who are hardcore to the continuity, the problems with this movie begin there for me. 
really. See, because that's the stuff that I love about this movie back then and even now. Not knowing any of that, not seeing any of that, I love the fact that we got a chance to see the first contact. I love the surprise at the end of the movie that they're Vulcans. And God knows Benjamin Franklin wasn't, you know, the upstanding gentleman as we all know now, but he certainly was an important man in our country's history. So it's kind of nice that they're not afraid to show you put these people on a pedestal, but they're humans just like you and me. I see your point, but as the casual Star Trek fan, one of my favorite parts about this movie is that entire Zephyrin Cochran story and what's behind it and what it means for the future of Star Trek. You couldn't have Star Trek without this man. It's kind of neat. I like Zephyrin Cochran more than I like two humpback whales named George and Gracie. That's for sure. And if we've got to do this stupid going back in time plot again, and I don't know why we've got to, I at least appreciated the end point of where we wound up. Whereas part four felt like a very heavy-handed eco-message about don't be bad to the environment. This is much more related to star travel. We're seeing the origin of it. And it is funny to see this sort of folk hero demystified and just be sort of an enterprising drunk. James Cromwell also, I'd like to say, is a very entertaining actor. I think he was just coming off Babe when he got cast in this, and I always enjoy watching him. I thought he was really good and, and a lot of fun in this part. Agreed. This is my first time watching it since seeing it in theaters and discounting it because it took such liberties. And you're right, Brock. This makes for an entertaining plot. Is it frustrating that the writers don't bother following what previous writers do? It is when I was a big fan. Now, as a casual viewer who's sitting down and watching these movies, and in some cases I'm watching these movies with a little bit of trepidation, you're right. It makes, again, like the queen for entertaining cinema. Yeah. In addition to a lot of action, they have this other plot. It does seem like two completely different movies at times, though. There is very little connection. It's like they time travel with the Borg just so they have an excuse to time travel to meet First Contact Zephyrin Cochran. You know, Cochran, whatever his name is. Let's talk about that, because as far as I understand, the MO of the Borg is they'll assimilate you no matter what. So why they feel they have to get an edge on Earth by going back in time, couldn't they take Earth in the 24th century? Uh, why would they need to go back before they evolved? And, of course, once you go with the – they can go back in time. Why wouldn't they go back to the dawn of man? Why – you know, ugh, I'll stop. Yes, exactly. Now, <laughs> why don't they win in the 24th century? It's quite simple. Human innovation has stumped them a few times. And so they decide to go back in time and stop first contact – and then radio the other Borg so that Earth can be assimilated before they get a chance to get as advanced as they are. So, in a way, I suppose that makes sense. However, it opens up several doors, much like Terminator. It, in the first Terminator, don't they claim that after the Terminator and the guy went back in time, they blew up the time travel machine so no one else could come? Yes. And yet, they keep coming back. Yes. And they also <laughs> go to 1984 instead of going to when Sarah Connor was a child. But... This is not the podcast retrospective on Terminator. <laughs> my, my reason for bringing this up is the same problem happens here. Here, the Borg travel back in time because they have the technology to. So why travel then and why travel – why go to Earth to do it? Why not travel back in time and then go to Earth? And I thought you had to go around the sun to go back in time. I mean, I thought that was dumb. Now it's just like, now we're just going to hit a button. Well, they had a time vortex, and everyone on the bridge figures out what they're doing, and Riker comes out, time travel. Like, he knew, like, <laughs> of course. So maybe in, like, 75 years later after Kirk and Company, maybe they figured out that time travel is easier than going around the sun. There are so many mechanisms for time travel in Star Trek that they end up just referring to it all as a temporal disturbance. So there are so many ways to create temporal disturbances. The Borg have a new one. They create that vortex that by seeing happen once, Geordi can instantly recreate. So I guess the Federation can now travel through time even easier than through this dangerous sun maneuver. But didn't they just piggyback on the back of the Borg's vortex? On the way there. On the way back, Geordi goes, I've been able to reconfigure the deflector dish to recreate the time vortex. How funny. I wasn't even listening at that point. I'm like, eh, they'll get back. It doesn't even matter. No sweat. <laughs> and we never even see it happen. <laughs> I, I totally missed that. At this point, time travel in this series is just something that happens whenever they have a cool idea and have no other way to make it happen. They want 
wanted to show us the inception of warp drive travel, and they wanted to have the Borg, and so they've cobbled together a very weak excuse for a very fun movie. One other thing, they were going to go back to like the 17th century in answer to why didn't they go earlier, and Patrick Stewart nixed it because he didn't want to wear tights. Mm. Well, there you go. He spent a lifetime doing that. I guess one could hardly blame him. You've mentioned Terminator, Ernie, and I think that's a very apt comparison. If part four, The Voyage Home, was sort of a back-to-the-future take on time travel, which is humorous and not very serious-minded in what it's trying to do, this one felt like life and death peril. This one felt like Terminator. Like, if they can stop this, all of mankind's history will be wiped out as we know it, and there's real consequence to it. And there's just something about the Borg in general that makes us think about the Terminator machines. And I think they were pretty inspired inspired by the Cameron films to kind of do their own take on it. That said, Alfre Woodard. <laughs> she's no Linda Hamilton, and I'm not even sure why she's in this movie. She kind of took the Whoopi Goldberg role, didn't she, of the one who's going to tell Picard how it is? And I guess that's what she was doing. I did notice Whoopi wasn't in this one. I don't know if they didn't want to pay for her fee or, or whether they just couldn't find a plot line for her. But Alfie Woodard is a great character actress. I've seen her in many movies. I enjoy her. But in this movie, she really makes no sense. It's not like if they do something to her, she's just a witness to... Cochran's whole travel. So whether she lives or dies really has no consequence whatsoever. But we spend an enormous amount of time with her running around the Enterprise, running from Borg. I can't even imagine like how you play that scene. Okay, you're in the middle of World War III, someone beams you on an alien ship, and now you're running from cyborgs with a bald man who you're going to fall in love with. Go! <laughs> Action! Now, poor Alfrey. <laughs> This isn't the best explanation in the world, but could it be that for the casual fan, they needed someone there who doesn't know all this stuff so that they need someone for Picard to bounce exposition off of? Because if he's telling this to Riker or someone, we're all like, yeah, he knows. I have to agree with Stuart, though, on I felt that I spent way too much time with this character. And then the way they used her, it just seemed like the thing with Moby Dick at the end of the movie. It totally seemed that that's why she's here, because no one else could call Captain Picard on this because he already dismissed Worf earlier in the movie for questioning him. It had to be someone who was not a crew member to question Picard. They needed to do something with Alfrey. I mean, couldn't it wouldn't it have been fun if we found out she was the genius behind Zephram Cochran's whole inventions and that if they kill her, then the flight won't happen? I don't know. I'm just spinning in air right now. But I just feel like if you'd just give me a little something about why she matters, I would have been much more engaged in her struggle. And while you're at that point of talking about her being the genius behind Zephram Cochran. One of my entire problems with the Zephram Cochran plot is that Zephram Cochran ceases to matter because what he did doesn't work. Jordy and the crew come down and fix it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, was... it creates this weird dichotomy that people who already knew about Warp Drive created the actual functioning Warp Drive. Which I could roll with, except that this is going to be recorded by the history books, and everyone's going to talk about this, and nowhere in the history books do they mention, oh, and by the way, the Enterprise showed up and showed us what the hell we were doing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes and no. I believe when the Borg attacked the space station complex, they damaged the ship. So they had to repair the ship for him, and they rebuilt it a different way because the way they had it was destroyed. That's what I understood it to be. No, they only did minor repairs. I mean, it was what it was, and they did fix it. But you take Cochrane, this great man who designed this pretty much on his own and was about to have his own launch, and you now undermine his own achievement, a man who's already having self-confidence problems, by the fact that he didn't do it. In his own mind, with as much self-doubt as this man possesses, don't you think he's up nights going, maybe it never worked until Jordy showed up? <laughs> yeah, or maybe they're celebrating the wrong person. I understand your point. I didn't see it that way. I didn't understand why Riker and Jordy were in the actual capsule. I, I didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it was it was a little Apollo 13, I thought. Uh, they even had the uh, Steppenwolf song. What was, what was that? Magic Carpet Ride. Yeah. But if you overthink it like I do, it creates an unreconcilable paradox. If the Borg didn't attack, maybe his confidence would not have been shaken. But maybe it always happened. I mean, it depends on what reality you're looking at. Maybe it always was. It's like Scotty saying maybe that guy invented transparent aluminum. Right. <laughs> 
right. And okay. it's, I mean, right. Terminator did it well, I think, with Michael Bean coming back and impregnating. You know, th- that paradox is very interesting about how he's the father of John Connor. Uh, that worked for me. This one, it, it did feel more like a cop-out. But hey, okay. I'm willing to give this movie a lot because uh, just for sheer thrills, I think this is the best-looking Star Trek we've seen. It has suspense. Right. It has action. And I was with it, particularly the scenes of the Enterprise taking over. To me, that was really gripping stuff. I don't think we've ever felt like the Enterprise was in danger. Sure, it's blown up. They've done that twice now. It's like whenever they get in trouble, let's just blow it up. This one, they actually make that a part of the dilemma. They make that as part of the drama. Picard doesn't want to give up on a ship, and he's going to stay and fight. I remember when I saw this in theaters, and they said that self-destruct, and I'm like, are they really going through a ship a movie now? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I, I, I would not have been cool if they had blown up the Enterprise to solve the problem. I'm glad that they went a different route. Stuart, in a lot of our podcasts, you make a lot of comparisons to Alien. And I think this one especially, this movie, has a lot of stuff that Alien did and borrowed from there, but successfully borrowed from Alien. Don't you agree? Add an S to that. Not Alien, the Ridley Scott film, but the James Cameron sequel. Absolutely. Really? Having a queen, the opening se- dream sequence of feeling like they were infected. Uh, Ripley has a moment when she comes out of sleep and thinks an alien's bursting out of her chest. Just kind of like Picard has that little wire thing stick out of his cheek in a dream. I mean, Aliens was more like a war movie. And this one, when they're going through the paces with their phasers and all that, it had that vibe for me. And I do think it worked well. I think that's why we have a bored queen, is they realize how well that conceit worked in Aliens. So even though it doesn't make sense, it's awfully fun to watch her play S&M games with Data. <laughs> also in Aliens, they kind of use their resin to change the walls. And here the Borg had kind of rebuilt the walls and the architecture even felt kind of Geigerian, if that's a word. It isn't. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Frakes, I thought, did a really good job with this movie. I'm sure he's directed episodes of The Jex Generation. I, I can't imagine he did. All of the cast members pretty much did. Any who wanted to got a shot behind the camera. I felt he really did set up the scenes. I kind of realized, of course, that even though it's two different movies, the stuff on the planet had a lot of the comic stuff. The stuff on the spaceship above was more of the serious stuff. And I thought that really worked well. I thought the camera set up, the Borg point of view stuff. All that stuff was really cool. For me, not knowing the Borg very much, it really was effective in getting me involved in what was going on. Even though I still don't completely understand the Borg all that much, it is kind of neat that I don't. I don't have to. I'm just told that I'm going to go along with it because of the way it's done. I thought he did pretty well with this movie. I agree with you. You know, I was willing to take pot shots at the directing because, in my mind, Frakes is so similar to William Shatner. But clearly, he's proven himself behind the camera in this one in a way that Shatner was not able to pull off. I think he did a lot of juggling between the comedy and the suspense, and the balance works. You're right. It is two different movies, and a less capable director would really make that a problem. But here, I was was laughing in the humorous scenes with Troy getting drunk, and I was really engaged when there's that cool scene when they walk into the dark room and then all of a sudden there's like these red little laser lights coming and then all of a sudden the Borg are all over them. That's very cool. I thought he did handle it very well. Let me give Frake some props because that scene where they're doing the spacewalk, Mm -hmm. that was practical. That was not a lot of CGI. That was a real set and as I understand it a nightmare to film and really done effectively and the zero G was so much better here with the effects than it was in six and I think all of the action scenes were shot marvelously and I think that I don't know how much you can credit Frakes for the main actors performances because they've been wearing these skins so long that it has to be pretty much second nature but I do think that he did a wonderful job of directing the camera of setting the scenes and really thinking big with this movie which is the best trek has ever looked mm-hmm. i agree that said he can't direct himself <laughs> i didn't realize that william Riker was such the comedian i'm always so used to him being so stodgy and serious in this ship and in this movie he's cracking jokes to Worf, which i thought was really funny i thought the stuff with deanna his reactions to deanna was funny he had all the funny lines that looking with jordy in the pod later in the movie he was having a great time that's not the character of william Riker that i know from the 40 episodes i've watched of the next generation 
Did I just miss those episodes of the series where he's actually a fun, likable guy? It has always been a part of his nature to give his fellow crew members a gentle ribbing, but he's never been wacky like he is here. But that was my problem is he has this silly grin on his face throughout every scene he's in. Like the, I can't believe I'm directing this movie grin. And I have to say that scene with Deanna Troy, first of all, I find Deanna Troy to be the most useless empath in the world. She, as I said last podcast, she can tell when Picard is upset. Woo, so can I. <laughs> what, 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 is, what is her big deal that she's there? Because this film too, Captain, what's wrong? I bet it's a drinking game for people. Every single time she says, Captain, what's wrong? It's insanity. But this movie, she didn't have a chance to do that too many times because she was drunk and I didn't believe her as a drunk for one minute. That was her big character moment. It was. I mean, really, she should have been out there with Cochran, not Jordy, not Riker. Agreed. She needed to be doing counseling. I mean, understand <laughs> she's a cripple because her mother's people are full-blown mind readers, but because she's half-human, she can only get a feeling. And so she's already not too skilled in that regard. Every ship has a counselor, so you'd at least think she'd be up on her book stuff. No, I, I've never liked this character in general. It's, when I watched the first couple seasons of Next Generation, she was always the one that had me rolling her eyes. She was sort of like the Barbara Streisand of the crew. It was just like all motherly. And it, I, I agree. She never had a point. There was never anything for her to do that felt effective to the story. Might I, I just say, if your military needs counseling, perhaps they need shore leave and to be replaced with a new officer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be defended by the neurotic. I think there was a drinking game every time she's like, I feel pain or I feel <laughs> hostility. You know, again, it was she was the queen of stating the obvious, but eventually they truly made her into more of a shrink. She's probably and just reading her fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Will Wheaton's fan mail. Ooh. <laughs> My favorite scene in the whole movie is the zero G dish scene. I remember loving that scene the first time I saw it. I loved it this time. I think it works, as you said before. And I think it also isn't Worf like the perfect guy to have there. It, what a great scene that was. I guess what I really want to talk about is how great Worf is in this movie. You, you complained earlier about you know, how convenient it was to get him here. Thank God he was here. He had some great, he had a great scene with Picard. He had this wonderful scene here on the dish. He's the muscle. He's totally capable. Fun character to watch in this movie. Thank God he was here. He was great. They gave him the Arnold Schwarzenegger line when one of the Borg is floating away. He was like, assimilate this and then blast him. I'm just like, wow, I finally get why you're here. It's like, yeah, he is the heavy in a crew of otherwise, mm, Less than a butch uh, crew. Let me agree completely. Don't mistake my saying him being there is convenient as a complaint for him being in the movie. Because when I look at this cast, when watching this, I thought to myself, you know, this is a big cast. And poor Gates McFadden and Marina Sirtis still get pushed to the background. They're like the Chekhov and Uhura of this new generation. And why would you need to bring back this man? He's a working actor. He's already on another Trek show. Why did you have to bring him back? And the answer is because he's the only one who can kick butt other than Data. And Data was preoccupied in this movie. But when you need a fight, Worf is the one you put in there. They could have done something with this new crew member, Hawk or whatever. But it was so obvious by his lack of speaking lines that he was going to be dead meat. We were watching this. I said to Marjorie, hey, Marjorie, Worf Picard and another crew member go out on the hull. Which one's not coming back? <laughs> yeah. The one thing I didn't like about their assimilation process this time is it was almost like a zombie movie because how long does it take for a human to become a Borg? You got Hawk out on the hull and he's a Borg in 20 seconds, whereas you also see people getting limbs chopped off and replaced with robotic limbs. It seemed another convenience that all of a sudden, hey, he's a Borg now. Yeah, I didn't know that you could just stick somebody and that they grow Borg inside of them and pop out. Yeah, it was, it was like a zombie movie. Yeah. Is this a new take on it, Arnie? Yes, it is. It was always kind of slow going. You know, they had to do the manual processes. This whole, we're going to have wires come out of our hands and inject your skin. First of all, they just didn't have the budget for such things before. Mm. And second of all, I mean, even the opening scene here where you see Picard being Borgified, it's a very laborious procedure. It only took, you know, maybe a few hours, but it wasn't a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like when they Borgify someone, I'm going to create an 
another word here. They put all this stuff on their face and in their head and make them part of the collective. How did they have time to do any of that with Hawk? It was just, boom, Hawk is ready to go fight Picard. That didn't make a lot of sense, but it was a good scene, although I have to admit the whole reason for them doing it seems somewhat contrived. When I was watching it, I'm like, what are they doing out there again? What are the Borg building? All right, uh, it's a cool scene. That was the communication device to talk to the other Borg. Right, but why did they need to do that? They were assimilating Borg on the Enterprise. Why not just go down and start assimilating away? Why do they need to communicate with the other Borg? Yeah, I thought all the Borg knew everything that every other Borg knew anyway. Isn't that part of it? They were out of range. Oh. (laughs) No no cell phone coverage in Earth. (laughs) Yeah, they got Radio Shack frequencies. You know what? My complaint about the sensor dish is my complaint about this entire movie. I think the action works very, very well, but it's just so pointless as to why we're having it. You know, the entire setup is tissue paper thin. The whole thing, if it gets wet, is going to fall apart. But it's fun to watch, you know? You're sitting there, you're going, (laughs) hey, that was cool! He cut off an arm and it floated away! You know, it's great, but why are they doing it? It just, that was the whole thing that plagued me the whole time, is it makes no freaking sense. Khan was very good at being both a great science fiction story with the Genesis device and being kick-ass. And this movie is only good at being kick-ass. Agreed. Yeah, I hear that. I agree. I agree with Arnie. It's just lots of fun to watch. Although I had one giant complaint about this movie, and we talked a little bit about this last time, but you gotta talk me down from this one again. Can you guys take a wild guess about what I'm gonna talk about? The holodeck? The holodeck! Ding, ding, (laughs) ding, ding, ding! You win the grand prize. Let's talk about the stinking holodeck. Okay, so I love the holodeck as an idea. I think it's brilliant for the TV show. I think it's really, really smart that they have this on the ship so they can give all these different kinds of plots. I understand why the holodeck is there. I also understand that as a Star Trek watcher, you gotta give them a little bit so they can tell the stories they want to tell in the holodeck. That being said, if I just met a captain of a ship from the future, would I put that outfit on if I was Alfred Woodard? I don't think so. (laughs) If you're getting chased by zombie robots, you do what the bald man says. After nearly dying from radiation poison. I mean, she had the most ridiculous part. I want to again say props to Alfre Woodard for even keeping a straight face during this. So the conversation that we didn't see had to go like this. So you're from the future. This is what? This is a holographic what? I have to put this on. Well, if it's a holographic thing, why can't I have a holographic dress? You want me to put that on? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense, okay? Then, the piece to the resistance. Yes. Oh, Brock, I need to interrupt. Don't you remember the scene where they go, Computer, 21st century clothes. I do. And the computer makes them 21st century clothes. I was going to bring that up. Thanks for doing it now. So the computer can generate clothes for them to wear on the Earth, but in the holodeck, it's stumped. No, it created <laughs> them. It was, the clothes were waiting there, generated by the computer for them to put on. It's just not a holographic projection of clothing. So the computer can actually create clothing. The computer creates everything. Have you ever seen them eat? Computer, tea, Earl Grey, hot, boom, there it is. It's a matter replicator. It builds whatever you tell it. Factory jobs aren't really high paying in the 24th century. And what do they do with this stuff after it's done? They put it into a reclamation center, basically recycling it back to its own subatomic particles so that it can then be used to build the next thing they need. That's a load of crap. (laughs) What's worse is I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's move on from that load of crap to this next load of crap, which I have extreme problems with. The bullets? Yes. In the holographic gun. I know. they, They have a holographic gun, and they turn the safety protocols off. Therefore, you can die from holographic bullets in real life. That doesn't make any sense. I felt like they were just running through rooms in the ship. They had been in the medical bay. They'd been in the engineering and all of that. And it was like, oh, we have to go to the holodeck. If, if the story's about the Enterprise under the siege, we have to do a holodeck scene. And so they come up with this. And quite honestly, I feel like they could have written a better one. Well, the yeah. one they wrote was a reference to the Emmy-winning episode, The Big Goodbye, where it was an episode where Picard was trapped on the holodeck with safety protocols off, and I think a crew member or someone got shot and killed, and so they referenced that one again. It would have made a lot more sense to go back to Brock's clothes argument to create a holodeck of just a whole bunch of modern people so they didn't have to change clothes. 
or create a maze. I'm the casual fan of Star Trek. I'm the guy who watches it once in a while, but kind of gets it, kind of understands what's going on. Well, they explain it in there that the bullets will be there so they can kill the Borg to get the stuff out of the Borg. And they don't really explain it except for what, oh, I turned the safety protocols off. It's so convenient. And I understand a lot of these things in this movie are convenient, but this one really sticks out like, what? Well, you're talking again about a contrivance that was 10 years old where this had already been established long before this movie. And if you are brand new to this movie, you're not going to question why holographic bullets kill someone. You're going to see a Tommy gun shoot someone and it kills them and go, yep, that's what a Tommy gun does. It was an interesting scene, but the logic in it, I question. Yeah, of all the things I have problems with in this movie, that wasn't one of them. And that's, you know, that's surprising because I have a lot of issues with this movie, despite the fact, again, that I had a good time watching it. Yeah. Can I talk about my favorite scene? I totally dug Data in this movie and when he becomes captured and tied up uh, with the Borg Queen. Now, I don't know why there was a Borg Queen. I don't know how she got on the ship. Nothing makes sense, but I'll tell you what. Her entrance, it's a, it's a nod to a, a, a Japanese animated film, Ghost in a Shell, where it's just her head and some wires descending and then sticking on a body, and then her coming over to dad is just awesome. And I think Alice Krieg, I've enjoyed her always. She's turned up in little art movies, and she was on Deadwood for a while. She's always a fun actress for these kinds of roles. And her interplay, trying to pick apart Dada's sensors and uh, assimilate him, is really kind of sexy and fun and just perverted i was thinking hellraiser with that stretched flesh and all the talk of the flesh and that was what i called back to or cronenberg too he does a lot of that in videodrome or really any of his movies i thought she was cool that scene with her head and shoulders going into the body was i think on the commercial i thought but it's such an effective special effect and you we talked about last time about special effects for the plot versus special effects because they can. This is, might be an example of a special effects because they can, but it's really cool, so who cares? It definitely is. What, what can I say? I see a lot of illusions here uh, with, with Apollo 13 and Ghost in the Shell and Terminator. They're definitely aware what is in the popular culture mainstream and assimilating it, Borg-like, <laughs> into their story. But hey, I loved it, and I loved every scene with Alice Krieg and Data and their interplay. I thought it was very satisfying. I thought it was funny that Data was horny. He's like, it's been eight years, 245 days. Yeah. Really amusing. (laughs) It's like, I haven't had it in so long. There must be episodes in which Data got it on, because I certainly don't remember that. One, with Tasha Yar in an episode where the entire crew is basically drunk because of some disease. They got it on, huh? Yes. That was where Data first used the line that he is programmed for many pleasuring techniques. Wow. That was a funny line. I love the interplay there. I like the danger. I've already said my piece on the queen. The one thing that I didn't care for was that Data seemed so tempted and he wouldn't rip the flesh off his own arm. And I'm like, you know, it was questionable. And his whole thing at the end, why did he even bother to fire the torpedoes? They're trying to fake us, the viewer, out, not do anything internally for the story reasons. He's not trying to fake out the queen. He's faking out us. Yeah, all he did was buy a couple extra seconds. It didn't really make sense why he would go along with that ruse, but it surprised me. I have to say, I didn't, for some reason, I didn't see that coming. He could have punched out that coolant hours earlier yes, to kill yeah. them all. Yes. And it was it was playing on us. Although, I don't necessarily like Data in this movie. First of all, the last movie, the entire completely irrelevant to the plot, subplot of Data and the emotion chip, now Data's got some problems with the emotion chip and he can turn it off all of a sudden? That would have been helpful last movie. I didn't like the evolution there it's kind of like Jordy's eyes all of a sudden data can now turn emotions on and off at will i was okay with that i didn't need a whole lot of exposition on it oh he figured this out cool i'm good like i said some these were some of my favorite scenes with him in it and i didn't know he was such a badass when he's fighting this borg i didn't know who knew he blue watched the series oh yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite exchanges then i guess you could use the words haunted me from this movie since i saw it the first time was um perhaps you turn your data uh, your emotion chip off now and mr data sometimes i envy you that stuck with me since i saw this it's one of those things that as a human being, yeah, wouldn't it be great once in a while to be able to turn it off and just do what you have to do without having to worry about your thoughts getting in the way? It literally has stayed with me for all these years, and I, once in a while it comes back to me, I'm like, yeah. I, I mean, I hate to get deep on it, but it's true. <laughs> 
I think Data is an even more interesting concept than Spock was. I know he's obviously a riff on Spock and the update on Spock, but I think you can do with so much more with him, given his weird origin and his whole uh, robotic nature. I think there's just more for him to explore. And I really think he is one of the series, any series, most effective characters. I always liked Data as a kid because I always felt that he was already having some emotions in his quest for emotions because he had a lot of self-pity and anxiety about it. But if I can pat myself on the back for a moment, Stuart, when we were doing the Friday the 13th podcast, you told us about how you wrote the script with the telekinetic fighting Jason. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was big into Star Trek, I wrote a Star Trek novel that had Q turning to Data because in the the very early episodes, Q was trying to turn Picard or Riker into a Q for the sake of understanding the human desire to be more. I had Q, not the Borg, turning to Data as the next step in this trying to become more. And here they do that same kind of thing that I had in my book, so I also am mad at Paramount for stealing my ideas, but they just mm-hmm. use the Borg Queen instead of Q. Well, start a class action suit, Arnie, right after this podcast. <laughs> A couple other things before we end here that I thought were really cool. I love the Dwight Schultz cameo. That was great. He was in a few episodes as a guy addicted to the holodeck. It was one of the first episodes where Troy gets to counsel. And it was great to see him here. I got a big kick out of Howling Mad Murdoch. Yeah, he was great. I would have rather seen Mr. T, I'll admit. How cool would that have been? One other thing I wanted to bring up. They explain away in one line that the Vulcans not see the Enterprise. Their warp something or other was hidden by the moon. Well, didn't they see the Enterprise fly away then and then use a vortex to travel back in time? Or didn't someone happen to mention while they were sitting there partying to the classic 50s rock that, hey, you won't believe this, but this starship called the Enterprise came by and they're hanging out up there. I mean, no one mentions this. Alfre Woodard, she spent the whole day running from cyborg monsters on the ship. She's mom? Come on. Well, I always took it as off screen. They told them, hey, you can't tell anyone about us or the future's screwed. I mean, Picard does say that line to Alfred Woodard that his people are to land and stay out of history's way. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I got, a, I got a newbie question. One point early on, I think Riker says, don't lecture me about the Prime Directive. What's the Prime Directive? Prime Directive is, oh, and it's a good thing you're asking before the next movie. <laughs> The Prime Directive is a rule for the Federation that they do not interfere in primitive cultures, and I guess in this case it refers also to time travel. If there's a culture evolving, the Federation's not going to land and say, hey, we're going to give you all kinds of technology and jump you ahead 300 years. They will only interact with advanced civilizations who have mastered intergalactic starflight who would find them anyway, and then they will try to make peaceful negotiations and do that sort of thing, but they want to allow life to evolve as its own and civilizations to evolve as its own. And this is something straight out of Roddenberry's playbook. This was from the original series that you cannot interfere with a culture. You can't stop a war that a culture is having with itself unless you are asked to intervene. Things along those lines. And there were a number of episodes where the entire conflict is doing what they want to do versus following this rule of non-interference. And so here it meant they can't change the past. Hmm. Okay, well, thanks. That makes sense. So, Arnie, Stuart, do you recommend Star Trek First Contact? Stuart. I do. I'm pleased after so many movies that were either I enjoyed but were silly or just dull or not hitting the mark or just being off. It was really refreshing to just have a nice taste of an action science fiction story. This is the kind of science fiction I like to begin with. Star Trek is always a little bit too cerebral for me, a little bit too pontificating. This one hit a lot of great notes. And even though I can recognize it's not reinventing the wheel and there's plot problems galore, it definitely is a good one. Artie. I love that Stuart used the words too cerebral. It made the Trekkie geek in me just really happy because those are the exact words that the 60s television producers used when they saw the first pilot. So too cerebral is a banner that has long plagued the series. Now, on to my recommendation of First Contact. I give it 
a weak recommendation. I sat there and I found myself having a good time while watching it, while at the same time realizing this is not a movie I will ever feel the need to watch again. It is not a watch again and again and again kind of movie. It's not that good. It's good enough, but it's not a great movie. It just hovers over the line of, yes, I recommend it. And it's just because the action is fun and the movie's pretty. It has great effects. It has great shots. I like that we're only 40 years away from people making rockets in their backyard. You think it's going to be 40? That's true. There was that group of students who uh, sent a balloon or a group of balloons up to the height of the atmosphere. So, yes, I recommend it. Barely. And I do recommend it. I enjoyed it much more the first time I saw it. And this time, I saw a lot of the flaws that I didn't remember the movie having. There's so much good stuff that's going on here. And this movie is so much fun to watch that for me, who doesn't really know a lot of the backstories of things, they do explain enough of the stuff here for me to have a good time and go along with it. But I do enjoy the characters and the situations and the action. There's a lot of great stuff here. This is my, I'd say, my second favorite Star Trek film. I agree. I think it is behind Khan as one of the good ones. So I want to thank you all for joining us for Now Playing today. If you enjoyed the show, please go to nowplayingpodcast.com and download other shows in this Star Trek series, Friday the 13th series, or just shows that have nothing to do with any series. And you can find those in our archive section on our homepage. If you have any questions or comments for us, please shoot us an email at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you go to our homepage, you can link to our forums where we're discussing this and every other episode we've recorded for Now Playing. I want to thank Arnie and Stuart for joining me today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. And we will join you all for an insurrection. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) When we come back next time. I thought I was wearing looser pants. (laughs) (laughs) Live long and prosper. Dude. Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise, your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved. The man, or the... (laughs) (laughs) That would be a new movie. (laughs) That that, that would be, uh, yes. A different Schwarzenegger Um, movie. Yes, the different... The The Spinator. Yeah, I think that was the Spermanator. But, uh...